Would you turn now with me to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy, uh, chapter 3. 2 Timothy, chapter 3. Timothy chapter 3. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For when <clears throat> for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins led away by various lusts, always, lead, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as James, James and Jamarese resisted Moses, so, so do those also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds, disapproving, disapproved concerning the faith. But they will progress too further, sorry, for they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all, as others also was. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, Afflictions which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium and Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them, out of them all, the Lord delivered, uh, delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, but men and impositors, impositors, will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in all things which you have learned and been assured of knowing that from whom you have learned them, and, from that <coughs> and that from your childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look into your, your word this morning in this matter of keeping the spring of our lives, well, Heavenly Father, we pray for wisdom as we look to see the applications here in, 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 in Timothy. Lord, give us that truth. May your Holy Spirit enlighten us. Give us an urgency to serve you, to, to, be, your, to be your ministers. Well, Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord God, that you'll bless this word to us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So I mentioned to the kids, <clears throat> the late Peter Marshall, a, a Scottish-American preacher, was appointed as chaplain of the United States Senate in 1946. And he said, I'm going to quote him uh, a little bit here at the, the beginning. He said, What the keeper of the springs meant to the village, the Holy Spirit and Christians 
mean to the world, to our world. You may wonder if our, our village, our world, our village is gone too far for us to have any effect. Servants of Jesus Christ have always been in the minority, a small remnant surrounded by a strong-minded, determined majority. And then Peter Marshall went on to quote <coughs> Jesus. He said uh, from, if, from Matthew, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavour, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Now use those few verses uh, and the, this story that I just gave to the kids uh, in his sermon. Freya and I were very privileged to hear a sermon from, uh, from the PCA in Tari a few weeks ago. And uh, the preacher there... Um, what's his name? Uh, well, I can't remember his name, that's good. Um, <clears throat> he used this, this illustration of the keeper of the spring at the end of the sermon. He was applying that to the time when Martha was busy trying to get things ready for Jesus while Mary is busy talking to Jesus. It was a good sermon. And um, uh, I decided I would use this example, but in another way, uh, which he didn't use. So bear with me. <clears throat> So I ask the question, in what ways are you a keeper of the spring for your own life and to those around you? What other simple daily, weekly, monthly practices you can employ <clears throat> to the flowing water of your life? What are the obstacles that stand in the way of these simple practices? Maybe we face questions like, how do you know the Bible is true? Emotional obstacles, pain can often keep us from belief. Behavioural obstacles. Seeing that God is calling us to a holy life makes many people reject Jesus. They want us to live by their own standards. Spiritual obstacles. Only God the Holy Spirit can change your heart. And Christians are called to make disciples, but we alone are not capable, capable of changing people because the spiritual warfare is taking place around us. What will it take to remove these barriers so that you and I can be, can be the best keeper of the springs of our own life? So the morning, this morning I want to look at two things. Firstly, let's take an honest look at our village. And secondly, let's see how we, see how we can become the helpers to the keepers of the spring to achieve spiritual victory. We read in 2 Timothy here that the first 14 verses of chapter 3, sets the scene for us. We see uh, Paul delivering a prophecy about the last days, showing, showing how perilous times will be, describing the persons that will live in them and what will be their end. And Paul here is waiting in prison for execution. Earlier on, he had exhorted Timothy uh, to look upon his chains without being ashamed and without fear, because he wants Timothy Timothy to focus on being a faithful witness for Christ. Not worrying about Paul's, he's at Paul's circumstances at this particular time, but be a faithful witness for Christ and to follow the example of Christ who did not fear rejection or loss or death. <clears throat> the time Paul and Timothy were already, there were already people like this because Paul tells us in verse 5 there, and from such people turn away. So things are already bad 
and he's asking, he's saying to Timothy, turn away from these people. And that's always been the case, hasn't it? The attitude, that's the attitude of the world today. And that has adversely influenced us at particular times and has also uh, affected the church. But we can expect that as time passes, things will progress in cycles with increasing intensity until the final days of this age where the Antichrist arises. I mean, we can expect the culture of the world will continue to influence those within the church. And that is the reason Paul's teaching of 2 Timothy is applicable to you and I today. We find a subset of such men. They exhibit uh, some three interesting characteristics. <clears throat> they exhibit things like self-focused pleasure and, life, and seeking a lifestyle. And these could be potentially influencing or even among the church in Ephesus where Paul ministers. And he uses the example here of Jeanne and Jambres, men who, were, who resisted Moses. It refers to these two magicians who opposed Moses before Pharaoh. The magicians were able to, when Moses caused his staff to turn into a serpent, they were able to do the same thing. And they were turned into many serpents. However, Aaron's rod, Aaron's serpent, swallowed their serpents. You see, serpents. You see, Jan, Janus and Jambra had a form of power, but that was not a power from God. In the same way that these magicians in time uh, did this, the same way that folly continues today. We must continue to treat, to teach what is true, opposing what is false. And of course, in time, the folly of those will be, uh, who, do, who oppose the truth will be obvious to us, as they were obvious to Moses at that time. In these first 14 verses, to see, we find three particular undeniable descriptions of our world. Firstly, in verse 1, there are perilous, perilous times, or the translation could be difficult times. In verse 8, there's corrupt minds, or depraved minds. In verse 13, there's deception, there's the deceived. But I want to look at this first one. Perilous, ter- perilous or difficult times. The Greek, Greek word here means grievous, or harsh, or fierce, or savage. And it's the only other time it's used is in Matthew 8, in, chapter 20, in, verse, in verse 28, where it appears the writer describes two men with demons as being exceedingly f- fierce. So isn't this an apt description of the world today? Savage, harsh, violent. If you think that's an exaggeration, you've only got to read a newspaper or listen or watch the news. And I think it convinced me that our village is in desperate straits. The world around us is in desperate straits. We look at verses 8 and 9. As I said, it, it mentions these two, these two men that opposed Moses. They were men of corrupt minds who used, uh, whose words are used against them. And what it means for us is that mankind is as bad off spiritually as it can possibly be. Mankind generally is dead towards God. They're unmoved by any spiritual thing, hard-hearted, dark, dark within. And the second matter I wanted to look at too is depravity, depravity. I'm reminded by a couple of sections in Isaiah. Firstly, in Isaiah 53, verse 6, all we like, have gone, all we like sheep have gone astray. 
We have sinned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And in Isaiah 64, but we are all like an unclean thing and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have driven us, have taken us away. And there's no one who calls on your name who stirs himself up to take hold of you for you have hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities. There's a three-letter three word that appears there all the time. All. All we have like, like sheep have gone astray. All of us are under iniquity. All our righteousness is as filthy rags. All of us fade like a leaf. See, depravity is a universal disease in our society and we are reaping what we have sown. Our world is on a collision course destined for a Christless eternity. And also, we still have to deal with our own lingering depravity in our own village, our lives. You see, there's two villages I'm talking about here. Our village and the worldly village. We have to deal with them. The worldly village is in a much more perilous state. Our village is different. It's been changed, and I'm going to go into that in a moment. The third thing I want to look at is the descriptive term deceived in verse 13. Our village is, is deceived. And that shouldn't, be, that shouldn't surprise us. Our village, I'm talking about the world now, is a place where impositors flourish, rip off, rip off merchants, religious charlatans, people who falsely came to have some special spiritual knowledge. They're around us all the time. Many politicians speak from both sides of their mouth. No one can deny the phony facade of ads and fads. Scripture is right when it says things proceed from bad <clears throat> to worse. If we remove the spring of, uh, of life from the village, take away the salt and the light, within a brief time the village, village becomes deceased, a diseased cesspool of contamination. That's what that example is talking about. When there's no care when there's no care for the worldly village. There's no care to ensure our witness is faithful. When there's no care to ensure our witness is constant. When there's no care to ensure our witness uh, is taken up at every opportunity. Then the world becomes at a loss because we haven't spoken up. It may depress you to, to look at this village but we must know our task. Are we promised easy lives? No, no. Not on this earth. Verse, verse 12, it tells us. And yes, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So don't be surprised with persecution. We have it pretty good here in Australia. A bit different to what we read in the Middle Eastern Reform Fellowship papers. A bit different to what we see happening in Ukraine and in Russia. And I can go on and on and on. But what can we do? What can really make a difference? Are we fighting a nuclear war with pillows? We need, brothers and sisters, we need the keeper of the spring. So let's look at the keeper of the spring, the Holy Spirit. While the Holy Spirit is only one, we, his servants... His representatives, his ambassadors, receive his strength in the task 
of keeping the spring. Three workings of the spring which are very evident to me. It is the power of the Spirit which motivates us as believers. It's the wisdom of the Spirit that sets afire our desire to know more about God, about his holy word, about the role he is to play in God's eternal purpose and plan. Do you feel those urgings when you read God's word? It is the abiding presence of the Spirit which provides that constant assurance that we are a child of God, beloved of, his, a beloved of our Heavenly Father and kept eternally in his circle of love. That's just three things I could think of about the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, in our work of maintaining our village, our personal village. And you know, um, Jesus' Jesus' words in John 14, I find so encouraging. Verse 16 and 17, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide in, with you forever. Don't forget that word at the end, forever. The spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Isn't that wonderful? He dwells with us and he's in us. And just as Christ has promised, he's come. The Holy Spirit is the key, is the key to keeping the world from total, absolute depravity. It's a great comfort to me. It is his presence in the lives of believers, in our lives, which makes a difference. But when we fail to let him live through us, we can be quickly overwhelmed by the temptations of the world. So we've got a battle here, as we know from uh, Paul's writings to the church at Galatia. We might think there are some in our churches who might be termed religious dropouts. Have become that because have no established pattern of spiritual growth. They're just statistics in our numbers. I'm not saying particularly uh, in our congregation here or necessarily in our, in our denomination. But two things can happen to these people. They either become lost in the great and faceless multitude upon the term the church has no influence or has no appeal or else they fall victim to persuasive enthusiasm of some religious cult. How many of our friends we've seen persuaded by a religious cult? We think we know them and we don't until they disappear. Often the fault can lie at the feet of the church. Maybe they were so concerned about salvation that these people lack spiritual care and nurturing. It's all well and good to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, to see people converted and see them being blessed. And you think, well, that's it. They're on their way. All the best. We don't need to worry. When was the last time you exercised spiritual care care, and nurturing of somebody in this body of Christ? Or are you leaving that up to Cal and I? When was the last time you encouraged a person by saying, I enjoyed the word today, or I enjoyed the study? How do you feel?
without care. People who are floundering in the cradle. Babes in the world of God. As though helpless. And they could take, but they can't take care of themselves. When we see, see somebody converted, we need to take up the, 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 the purpose of seeing how they are going. Not just Cal and I, but everybody in this congregation. We are the body of Christ. We care for each other. We are hands and feet. Let's remember that. We're praying for conversion of our covenant children. And when God answers that prayer, if he answers that prayer, I'm confident he will because they're covenant children. Are we ready to take up that ministry, each one of us? We each have a ministry upon this earth. Every one of you here sitting today has a ministry that God has given you to carry out in some way to make that body of Christ complete. And God gives us an important solution to this. We read in Proverbs, in verse 23, chapter 4, verse 23, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Now, why did Solomon say that to his son? As I said to the kids, the heart is more than just 70 beats a minute, or thereabouts. It is the centre of our spiritual being. That's why why Solomon is saying, guard it above all else, everything else. It determines our life. It's, I find this is one of the most important proverbs. Blessing or grief in our life depends on the ruling and training of our hearts. Are we training our hearts in daily reading, daily study, attendance on Bible studies, listening to the preaching, encouraging each other? You see... We're up against sin again. We say, oh, I'll do that later. I'll do that later. But if we direct and instruct our hearts with godly inputs, there's no limit to the potential success before God and men. You know, we know everything start, every sin starts in our heart. And, and our character often, our speech often reflects that, doesn't it? You pretend that you're different for a period of time, but in due time, your actions, uh, your, your, your heart dictates your actions. Others know your heart by your, your words and your choices. But our heart is our greatest asset. As I said, it can do more, more than just beat 70 times a minute for you. you know, we need to prize that inner self, a decision-making part that loves certain things and chooses to not love other things. Learn how to set your affections on good things. Paul reminds the people at Colossae, he says, set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. The things above are the things of God. We set our minds upon that. If we set our minds upon earthly things, we'll be horrified. And as you get older, it's even more horrifying. You see it. Things seem to be so bad. And that's what Paul's saying to, to Timothy. Don't let yourself be taken away by these perilous times. However, that doesn't mean we ignore our earthly concerns. It does, however, mean that ought, we ought to give our time and attention to things that are pleasing to God rather than things pleasing to the world. We still have to deal with our, our daily issues. 
whether it's family or friends or whatever, we still have to deal with those. If we have our, our heart built around the word of God, let us pray that we will deal with those issues in a godly, in a godly manner. That's what I mean about keeping the heart. As that old man kept that creek flowing nicely, kept the pollution out. We've got to keep the pollution out. And we've been armed with the things that can keep that pollution out. The word of God, times of prayer, times of devotion, times of fellowship together. What's your choice? Whatever's in your heart will come out in your life, doesn't it? If your heart's full of good things, your life will show that goodness. If your heart is full of sinful things, of course, it will show that as well. And there's lots of things we have to decide each day. Sometimes there's some things which we might decide on a daily basis, a weekly basis. But there's hundreds of other decisions we make during the day. Each one being guided by our hearts. Our hearts made up of our, our spiritual being and our heart and our conscience working together God operates through our conscience when we're converted our conscience is changed to be able to recognise good from evil doesn't stop us falling but we're able to recognise that the Holy Spirit shows us what's wrong <clears throat> but is your heart pure are you keeping it pure today or do you know the laziness in this matter we need to uh, eliminate those negative imports into our hearts. Jesus Christ condemned the Pharisees for emphasising man's outward appearance. He emphasised man's heart instead. He said in Matthew, and he said in a few places, but in Matthew chapter 12 he said, <coughs> Brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of your heart the mouth speaks. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good things and an evil man and the evil treasurer brings forth evil things. You see as I mentioned, sin begins in the heart a lust for a sin attracts your heart you think about it if you think about it enough you'll do it that's a, a, a death choice but we can protect ourselves as I said by keeping, thing, by keeping our, our heart diligent from sinful thoughts so dismissing those thoughts that Satan puts in our hearts. He puts a temptation there, but it's us who sins. It's not Satan sinning. It's us who takes hold of that temptation and ignores the urging of the Holy Spirit says, don't touch that. We go, oh, yeah. yeah, it's not so bad, not so bad. And suddenly you're, you're, you're falling into that sin. I'm speaking from experience here. You're falling into that sin and then you hate it. And then you turn to God, repent of it. bitterness, resentment. If we don't deal with those, they build up in our hearts. And we know that. We're bitter towards somebody because they've done something to us. Uh, I won't address it. And it builds up and builds up and builds up. And then you suddenly say something that you regret for the rest of your life. That's what happens when we don't care for our hearts. If you set, we set our hearts on the love of God, his worship, his people will find that we can conduct ourselves in a much better way. So how can you keep your heart pure? By protecting it from influences towards sin and supply it with influences towards holiness. 
And another terrific verse I remembered from Philippians chapter 4. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Now, we slip off and slip over that word at the end of the verse and say, great, terrific verse, all these things, we miss the real meaning. We are to meditate. We are to think about. We are to look at ways we can bring them to pass in our lives. It's a graphic explanation of how completely God's word can, extinguish, can distinguish between the godly and the ungodly. These are characteristics of a godly person. These are things that having meditated upon them, we exercise them. And to the, the, the benefit of the body of Christ. And thinking about this, I thought, well, wow, this incredible cutting power of Scripture is an unfailing tool to separate our thoughts uh, into good and evil. God will reward diligence if he sees a faithful heart and he will punish folly if he sees a heart with idols set up in it. Let's finish reading through the book of Judges. Wow, what a book. I call it the ups and downs of a nation. Unfortunately, there's lots of downs and not many ups. But the Israelites held on to their idolatry. Even though God condemned it, they held on to it, they held on to it till they were defeated in battle. Then he raised up a, a prophet or raised up somebody to save them. So we need to remember that we have got to keep our hearts away from things that distract us. Idols. Covetousness is idolatry, Paul says. We understand that because coveting something, we love it more than God. We love something more than God. It's an idol. That's something we've got to be out on, on the lookout all the time. And you think, well, okay, that's in my heart. Whoa, hang on. Jeremiah says to us, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The answer in verse, in verse 11, I, I the Lord, search the heart, I test the mind, even to give every even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. You know, God knows us better than we know ourselves. We think we know ourselves, but God can see right in. He can see right into the secrets of our heart. Just to conclude, in 2 Timothy 3, in verses 13 and 14, we read, But evil men and impositors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of. Therefore, let us have a new understanding this morning of the absolute necessity of the Holy Spirit to control our lives, to control our village. Just before his death, Jesus promised the disciples that he would send this comforter, the center of the comforter, who would abide with them forever. He told them that his comforter would be with them. But on the day of Pentecost, it was in them. Not only with them, but also in them. We have been filled with that same Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit came to indwell, in, to indwell believers, it was a permanent arrangement. He didn't come to, to be a visitor. He came to be the owner of God's property. And the Holy Spirit has a ministry for you and for you and for and us. As an unbeliever, the Holy Spirit 
is the agent of conviction. And that's what we're praying for, the Holy Spirit to work in the hearts of unconverted people. A spirit of conviction. As a believer, he reveals God's promise, God's will for us in our lives. He makes the scripture come alive and speak to our hearts. We know that. Things jump out of us. Because God is bringing, those, bringing that to our eyes, to our heart, probably to deal, help us deal with some particular thing. Scripture comes out and says, that's how you should be dealing with that. Well, that's for your benefit. That's for your growth. That's for your, your witness. He is our constant, constant companion. He's our supporter and our guide. I found an interesting story by Dr. S.D. Gordon. It tells of an elderly woman whose age began to tell on her memory. She had once known much of the Bible, the Bible by heart. Eventually one precious uh, verse stayed with her and it was, I know that whom, whom I have believed and persuaded that he is able to keep that which I committed unto him against that day. As time went on, part of that verse also slipped its hold and she would quietly repeat, quietly repeat that which I have committed to him. At last, as she's hovered on the borderline between this and heaven, her loved ones noticed her lips uh, moving. They bent down to see if she indeed if she needed anything. She was repeating over and over again to herself one word of the text, him, him. Him. She had lost the Bible all but one word. She had that whole Bible in that one word. She had the whole essence of Christianity. Through many years of her commitment to the Lord, God had blessed her with a deep and abiding faith that would never let go. But clearly, and we experience this too, it has been the design and strategy of Satan from the beginning to distort in every way he can the truth about the Holy Spirit as that truth is revealed in Holy Scripture. Yet in these two extremes, there is beautiful and vital and essential teaching concerning the Holy Spirit. I thought that was a wonderful quote. I've got another quote in a moment to finish off. Throughout the Bible, God is revealed to us through that Holy Spirit. So let's not neglect the work of the Holy Spirit, this vital ministry. Let him be the keeper of our spring. That's important, a keeper of our spring. Let him control your life. So God, so you can be the person that God has made you to be. And finally, Gordon sent a, told another story. A minister of the gospel was riding with a coachman one day. He loaded the coachman and he, he turned to the coachman and asked inquiringly, friend, if your team, talking about a team of horses, were running away with you after, <coughs> after you had done your best to stop them, what would you do if you suddenly learned that a person sitting beside you knew exactly how to control your team of horses and save you from the disaster? To this, the coachman said, I'd instantly hand over the reins to him. Won't you do that today? Won't you hand the reins of your life over to the Holy Spirit? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bless you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for your salvation in and through our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for that gift of your Holy Spirit that came upon our hearts when we were converted, when you regenerated them. Lord God, we pray for those who have heard your voice, who resist your call by saying, later, 
tomorrow. Lord, we bless thee for Christ Jesus, our Lord, our Redeemer, who has delivered us from our evil ways and brought us within the veil. Father, may you convert, convict, convert, justify, sanctify and glorify those who are seeking you this day, we pray. May you, may you Lord Jesus, grant us grace to also know and thirst after you and know your grace to always hunger after your things. All these things we pray through Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Redeemer. Amen.